you're about to have the gayest Congress in the history of the United States. The gayest Congress in the history of the United States. I personally love the sound of that. And chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, so do you. Now, that, of course, was Richie Torres. Richie is a New York City Council member, born and raised in the Bronx, and a current candidate for Congress. Richie won a very competitive primary in June for New York's 15th Congressional District. It is one of the bluest in the nation, so his victory in November is more or less guaranteed. That means that when he is sworn in in 2021, he'll become one of the very first queer people of color to ever serve in the United States Congress. Today, we talk about that very exciting milestone and also have what I think is a very frank discussion about mental health. Richie has experience with depression. He currently takes antidepressants. And these are all things I think we need to hear more of from elected officials. And then make sure you stay tuned to the very end of the podcast because, yes, I do ask him if he's single. It's a queer podcast. Y'all, if I don't do it, who else is going to? I do this for you. So let's hear it. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and a So something I was thinking about while preparing to talk to you is about how everything in politics and our country right now is just Trump-obsessed. Does it feel to you like we are paying less attention to congressional races like yours? Yes and no. You know, Donald Trump represents an existential threat to our planet and our democracy and our social contract. So naturally, he's going to be the focus of our politics. But, you know, the two are not mutually exclusive. Donald Trump is a racist relic of the past. And the new generation of leadership, the rainbow wave that has swept the United States, represents the future. You can think about both because one represents the past and the other represents the future. And the next election is essentially a choice between the two. Do we want to turn the clock back or do we want to move forward? You know, with the terminology of describing the rainbow wave, I get frustrated with that personally because I think the current congressional group has nine or ten out queer people. When it comes like nine or ten to me, it doesn't like make up a wave. Well, by wave, we're referring not only to Congress, right? I mean, you had Pete Buttigieg, who's the first openly LGBTQ viable presidential candidate. You're about to have the gayest Congress in the history of the United States. And you have nearly a thousand openly LGBTQ candidates for public office at every level of government. We've never seen a greater quantity or diversity of LGBTQ representation among candidates running for public office. And that's a sign of progress. And these city and state legislators like yourself will hopefully feed into these more national roles as well. Look, I got my start as as a a volunteer in a community board. Uh, And then I became a, a volunteer in the city council. So you have to start somewhere. You growing up could not look at Congress and see someone like you, somebody gay, someone Afro-Latino. You also like, dropped out of college. All these things about your biography do not make the quote-unquote typical politician. And so I want to know, did you know that there was a place for you in politics? And if not, when did that change? I never thought as a poor LGBTQ kid of color from the Bronx that I would ever become a United States congressperson. I never had LGBTQ role models growing up. I grew up in public housing. 
I had no conception of a world beyond the immediate boundaries of my neighborhood. The first time I met an openly LGBTQ person, a teacher, is the moment that inspired me to acknowledge my sexuality for the first time. But for the first 17 years of my life, I had no openly LGBTQ role models in my life in the Bronx. I led a sheltered life. And so that was somebody you knew intimately, a teacher. What about looking into like politics and seeing out politicians there? There were no real role models for me. I saw no one. I saw no, I did not see myself in the people running for public office or holding public office. There were certainly no openly LGBTQ people of color uh, at the congressional level that I know of. And, and so I felt largely unrepresented. And, you know, my, the, my story begins with poverty in the Bronx. I spent almost all my life in poverty, raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. And I grew up in public housing in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead without reliable heat and hot water in the winter. You know, my life is something of a metaphor. I grew up in a public housing development right across the street from Trump Golf Course. So as I saw the conditions in my own home get worse every day, the government had invested more than $100 million to construct the golf course in honor of Donald Trump. And I remember wondering to myself at the time, what does it say that our society is willing to invest more in a gated, gilded golf course for Donald Trump than in the homes of black and brown, low-income Americans. And so that experience of inequality is what inspired me to become a housing organizer. And then eventually I took the leap of faith and ran for public office. I was 24, openly gay, had no ties to the political machine, no ties to the dynasties of Bronx politics, but I was young and energetic with a fighting spirit and I knocked on thousands of doors. I went into people's homes. I heard their stories. There was one voter who said to me, in the 40 years I've been living in the Bronx, I've never had a candidate for public office knock on my door. And it was those kinds of interactions that led me to win my first race in 2013. I became the first openly LGBTQ elected official from the Bronx. But several years before then, I was at the lowest point. I had dropped out of college. I was abusing substances. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with a sexual identity crisis. I had lost my best friend to an opioid overdose. There were moments when I even thought of taking my own life. I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. And then seven years later, I became the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And now I'm about to become a United States Congressman for the only home I've ever known, the Bronx. And so I often tell people, my story is the story of the Bronx. It's a story of struggle, but also one of overcoming. You know, talking about depression and suicide like you do, I personally am not used to hearing politicians discuss that. Was that a big decision to make to open up and share that with people? My openness about depression is rooted in my lived experience as an LGBTQ person. You know, when you are openly LGBTQ, you have to go through the process of coming out. You have to go through a process of embracing who you are and sharing it with the world. And that process teaches you integrity. And that applies not only to your sexuality, but to every aspect of your life, right? There's a sense in which acknowledging your struggle with depression or with any mental illness is analogous to coming out. It's, 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 it's accepting, indeed embracing uh, an essential element of who you are. And I 
feel no shame in admitting that I struggle with depression. I feel no shame in admitting that I take an antidepressant every day that enables me to be a productive public servant who's risen to national politics. And I feel as a public official, I have a moral obligation to break the shame and stigma and silence that too often surrounds mental health. Are you saying that coming out and revealing that side of you to people allowed you to made it easier in a way to come out about these other issues that you struggle with? Yeah. I think when you go, when you go through it, this is my experience, but when you go through a process of coming out and when you learn to accept who you are, it makes you more secure in your own skin. It conditions you to embrace your individuality, embrace your integrity, to be true to yourself. That's the beauty. That's the gift of the LGBTQ experience. Oh, the choice to be who we are in all aspects, not just sexuality. I think it starts with our sexuality, right? But then that gift, I think, extends across the totality of our lives. I mean, that's how it's played out for me. Because I feel like when you have come out, when you've gone through the process of coming out and embracing who you are, you are a more authentic person. I I feel like I just said something controversial. (laughs) Wait, what was controversial? No, just judging by your reaction. No, that's just how I, that's my resting face. (laughs) It's just stressed. Okay. No, no, I don't. Okay. But going back a second, you said that you, you know, grew up and witnessed inequalities in the Bronx, specifically with your public housing being across from this building with Trump's name on it. But I think that for so many of us, we, we witness inequalities everywhere. And like we're, we're used to it in a way. Was there a, a moment when you decided I, I have to devote my life to this? Or is it just like always been your like one focus? My, my passion was housing. I, I, I was a poor person of color in public housing who had been abandoned by government, particularly the federal government. And rather than stand by passively on the sidelines, I asked myself, why not become the change I wish to see in the world? And the words of Mahatma Gandhi. And, and so I took the leap of faith and became a housing organizer. And then ultimately, I, I ran for public office. People have good reasons to be cynical. You know, if you're a millennial, you've lived through nothing but government failure, institutional failure, scandal and corruption in the Catholic Church, 9-11, the ca- catastrophic failures of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, the financial crisis, over-policing and over-criminalization, and the failure of public health and pandemic preparedness during COVID-19. You've known nothing but failure. You have every reason to be cynical. But I have a simple philosophy in life. If we do nothing, nothing will change. We cannot allow our cynicism to be an excuse for doing nothing. We have to be part of the change we wish to see. And and that is the philosophy that has guided me first as a housing housing organizer and now as a public servant. From public housing to the people's housing, that's what I, to the people's house, that's what I, That's my episode title. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Next year's survey in Congress, though, you'll be 32. Will that be the first time you've ever lived away from the Bronx? Going to live both in the Bronx and D.C., because I believe in returning home and, and being visible in your district. The, the most important lesson my mother taught me is never forget where you come from. Uh, you have to return home. You have to represent your district or else the voters will rightly vote you out of office. So you can take me out of the Bronx, but you can never take the Bronx out of me. You know, right now we have seen the Congress pass a lot of bills that have gone nowhere because of the Republican Senate. And if Republicans continue to control the Senate next year when you're in office, what is there that you can do about it? 
look, we, we have no choice but to agitate and to fight, but we have to ensure that the Democrats control the Senate. Like if, if the Democratic Party wins the presidency and wins the Senate and retains control of the House, then we will have the makings of an FDR moment. We will have a once in a century opportunity to govern as boldly in the 21st century as FDR did in the 20th century, right? We will have a historic opportunity to enable our society to recover from COVID-19, create the next generation of jobs, fight catastrophic climate change, modernize our infrastructure, establish a more comprehensive social safety net, begin to address the root causes of systemic racism, pass the Equality Act so that the LGBTQ community is protected from discrimination in matters of housing and employment and public accommodation. There's so much we can do in an FDR moment. You know, not every generation has an FDR moment, but if all the stars are aligned, then we will. And we have to make the most of it. And if we don't take back the Senate, if we don't get that FDR moment, what does fighting and agitating mean? We are in trouble. Like, even with an FDR moment, we are in danger of facing a right-wing Supreme Court. What good is a democratically elected president and a democratically elected Congress if the popular progressive priorities of the party can be overturned by the Supreme Court, by a right-wing oligarchy on the Supreme Court? And so I feel strongly that we have to expand the Supreme Court, that we as Democrats have to be every bit as relentless and ruthless in building democratic power as the Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell, has been in building Republican power. Unilateral disarmament is a loser's game. You know, the Supreme Court should be the supreme priority of the Democratic Party. And the LGBTQ community, in a sense, has the most at stake. Because if a right-wing Supreme Court reinterprets religious liberty as a license to discriminate, then that will have the effect of eviscerating all human rights protections for the LGBTQ community at every level of government, including the Equality Act because the Constitution trumps everything else. So, so we have no choice but to ensure that Joe Biden becomes president and the Democrats win the Senate, and we expand the Supreme Court so that we can protect our progressive agenda and protect the equality of the LGBTQ community. Everything is at stake. Well, going off of that with the Supreme Court, we are speaking on the morning that two Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, lashed out against Obergefell, which you know expanded the right to, for marriage for all queer people. They said that it should be overturned as you said, because it threatens religious liberty. To me, it feels like we are increasingly being forced to preserve advancements and to hold the line instead of making new ones. Does it feel that way to you? Yes, we have to fight for our equality and we have to fight for our progress. Uh, we have to be careful not to lull ourselves into a false sense of security, into a false sense that progress is inevitable and linear. There's nothing inevitable about progress. We have to fight for progress. We have to continually agitate for progress because the gains that we have made can be easily reversed by the right-wing judicial activism of the Supreme Court. We are one court decision away from losing everything, and that's why the stakes are so high. And I think those stakes are so high because right now all of our attention is going to holding the line of what we currently have instead of fighting for new stuff. And so that is where I get frustrated, that we're not making you know forward momentum, we're only holding the line. I think it's both because you know we have not passed the Equality Act. If, if, if all the stars are aligned, we will pass the Equality Act. We will amend the Civil Rights Act to protect members of the LGBTQ community. But even that achievement could be undone by the Supreme Court. 
And you've said that your own sexuality has not been a big deal to you. Has that been surprising? No, it is a big deal to me. It's a, it's an, it's, it's, it is a big deal. Oh no, I'm sorry. Like in the, in the uh, election as like you're running as a politician. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, no, I think it was a big deal. Yeah, it was certainly a big deal in the sense that I ran, well, I, I ran in the most fiercely contested congressional primary in New York city. I was one of 11 candidates, but the front runner was said to have been Ruben Diaz senior. Right? Ruben Diaz senior has a reputation as the worst homophobe in New York state politics. In the 1990s, he said the gay Olympics would lead to the spread of AIDS. In 2011, he was the only Democrat in the state Senate to vote against marriage equality. A year ago, he said the city council is controlled by a homosexual cabal. And the conventional wisdom held that Ruben Diaz Sr. could not be beaten because he has been a larger than life figure in Bronx politics longer than I've been alive. And people thought that a young gay man like myself had no real chance of winning in the South Bronx, where the median voter is a church-going, elderly, Latino or African-American woman. That, that, that is a demographic to which Ruben Diaz Sr. would appeal more easily than I did, than I would. And, and that was wrong because we ran an aggressive grassroots campaign. This was a change election. I was the change candidate. And not only did we win, but we won so decisively that we sent Ruben Diaz Sr. into retirement, which is exactly where he belongs. I mean, in his own backyard, I won 43% of the absentee vote in an 11-person race, defeating Diaz Sr. by a margin of four to one. That is an overwhelming rejection of the status quo. That's an overwhelming rejection of the politics of hate and fear that Diaz Sr. has embodied for most of his political career. So for me, the, the triumph of an openly LGBTQ can candidate over the leading homophobe in New York State politics is a powerful testament to how far we've come. And it's one thing to have an openly LGBTQ elected official from Chelsea or the village. It's something else to have it in the South Bronx in a place where you might least expect it. That to me is a new kind of breakthrough in LGBTQ representation in politics. And so if you won your seat on city council by knocking doors, you said meeting people who've never heard from politician ever, what has campaigning been like now for Congress during COVID when you don't have that option? So there's minimal in-person interaction. I mean, I do see people in person when distributing personal protective equipment or distributing food. Like food distributions have become an essential part of what I do as an elected official. We mobilize our volunteers to call constituents in the district. And you know, campaigning during COVID-19 is as much about constituent service as it is about voter contact. You know, when we reach out to people in the district, the first question we ask is not can I count on your vote? The first question we ask is, how can we be helpful? Like, what are your concerns? What are your problems? And, and we try to provide constituent services to people in their moment of greatest need. You know, I represent, I'm going to represent the South Bronx, which is said to be the poorest congressional district in America. The unemployment rate could be as high as 25 to 30%, which is comparable to the joblessness of the Great Depression. You, you have to show people that you are visible and vocal and present in your district when it matters the most. That, you know, there are too many people who, who, who run for public office and then the moment they win, they disappear and then magically reappear in time for re-election. You know, I intend to be visible and vocal and present in all seasons, not just, elect not just doing electoral politics. I almost have to let you go, but I have one more question. Sure. Before this, I was on Twitter and I asked what questions people had for you. And one question popped up more than any other. 
Do you know what they asked? Uh, I don't know. Am I single? That is exactly it. Queer people always on brand. Is that right? Yes. Is that right? Yes, that's it. I, I am single, yes. So we can report that exclusively. So ha- happily accepting referrals. Okay. <laughs> Are you anticipating it be, being easier or more difficult dating as a congressman? I, I suspect the demands of congressional life have a crowding out effect on dating, on a personal life. But um, look, as, as I become more accustomed to the role of, of a congressional elected official, I hope to strike a better life, work-life balance, but it's a work in progress. So everyone listening should give you like six months on the job and then swarm your DMs. That's what I'm hearing. Sure, sure. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. This was fantastic. I appreciate it. Take care. And that was Richie Torres. You can find out more about him on his website right now. And of course, keep an eye out for him in Congress next year. Now, if you enjoyed this interview, please take a moment to rank us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. It is a big help to our show, just like tweeting about us and posting on social media. So if you do that, come find us. We're on there at LGBTQPod. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. And of course, we're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out our websites at theadvocate.com and glad.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Goodbye.